Hello, everybody. And all of those of you who are watching uh, on demand, we are uh, taping the Saturday night service this week in particular for on demand. So welcome to those of you who are watching on demand. I have a special word for you in a little bit uh, just to explain how this is going to be maybe a little different experience uh, for you. So we're in week seven of our series on Christian sexuality. And um, and so it's a series that we started in the fall. We've covered for four weeks. We're doing four weeks now. So next week will be the last week in this series. And <clears throat> we're moving along not with every session, but with eight of the 12 sessions that our students are going through. So the students are following a special curriculum called Christian Sexuality Curriculum. And we're going to be watching some videos from that curriculum uh, so you can get a little bit of a taste of, of what, that's, what that's like. And you have access, if you're a Five Oaks uh, attender, uh, you have access to that in the outline, the sermon application guide, which you can download online at our website. It has specifically some, uh, in the resource section, it tells you how to get access to that. And I just want to emphasize, uh, put your email on there as well. So don't just put on your card, put, put your email uh, as, as well. Uh, so, because understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you who are here, and you can grab one of those Bibles. It's page 990 in those Bibles, 990. So, we're looking at Matthew, Matthew 22 today. And today we're talking about what probably is the most difficult of these subjects uh, to uh, discuss and to narrow down, and uh, it's so complex and difficult. Uh, but we're talking about transgender identities today. And uh, I want to speak to those of you who are students uh, right off this, right from the beginning here um, a little bit, because undoubtedly, if you're, if you're a student, you know, like in middle school or high school, undoubtedly... You have friends or at least schoolmates, acquaintances at school, who are either struggling with their gender or they are... Uh, Harold, can you bring me down a little bit? I, I can't stand the, the feedback I'm getting up here. All right. So they're either struggling with their gender or they're transitioning to one degree or another, or they're just not maybe struggling, but they're just exploring various kinds of gender identities in their life. And uh, the reality is for some of our students here at Five Oaks, that might be the case for you as well. And so your experience is going to be very different than the experience of people my age uh, or even your parents' age. And the reality is if you have older siblings, brothers and sisters, who are maybe four, five years, six years older than you, your experience is very different because things are changing so fast and the way that this has been, you know, moved into like center stage and so many discussions and on social media and at school and everything like that, that your experience is going to be even different than your older siblings if you have some. But most of us who are older are catching up quickly uh, when it comes to exposure and experience with people who identify as trans. Uh, the focus of this sermon, though. The focus of this sermon is how should Christ followers, people who are followers of Jesus, how should they love people who identify as trans or are experiencing some distress 
over their gender. And in a sense, the sermon is written, isn't written to people who are going through that struggle. It's written to those of us who aren't going through that, that particular struggle, and maybe even have trouble understanding it. But it doesn't mean that it's not written for people who are going through the struggle. So we've talked about this uh, when we've, like, back when we started on the book of Romans, for example. Uh, we talked about the fact that the Bible is not written to us. You know, the, the book of Romans in our Bible is actually a letter, and it was written to actual Christians from the Apostle Paul. And so it was written to them in their situation. Uh, but uh, through God's sovereignty, His Scripture, His guidance by the Holy Spirit, it is written for us. And in the same sense, this sermon is not to people who are struggling, but is for them. Uh, for some people, uh, some of you, this is a frightening subject for a whole host of reasons. Uh, for one thing, it's very, very, very complicated and it's very sensitive, and things are constantly changing so much that people on the front lines of trans issues can't kind of, can't even keep up with how the language is changing, how people are understanding things, all of that sort of thing. So it's hard to keep up, it's hard to know what is a sensitive or insensitive thing to say in these kinds of discussions. Uh, so, I've included some resources in the Sermon Application Guide, and um, you can take a look at those if you want to go deeper into this subject. So, as we do every week, we pray, and we pray for God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate our understanding and our actions, and th to speak to us in His Word. And this particular prayer is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that you offer to each one of us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can be reconciled to you. We can be made right with you. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, your word says. The old has gone, the new has come. As we look to your word, we ask that you would illuminate your truth, give us wisdom and understanding through your Holy Spirit, and teach us and lead us to walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start, uh, before we get into the question that we're addressing, we're going to start with one person's story, and we're going to do that um, via video. And um, there are going to be five short videos that we're going to show in the sermon, and we can't post them on demand. We can play them live uh, for live streaming. We can play them for the people who are here live, uh, but we don't have the rights to be able to post them on demand. So I'm gonna give a concise summary at various points of some of the videos of what's coming up. And in this first video, it's a woman named Kat telling her story. And it's about her struggle with gender stereotypes, but really more than that, it's really about her struggle, a pretty significant struggle with gender dysphoria, with, with distress over what her gender is. And she talks about how she navigates this as a follower uh, of Jesus. And um, again, I would suggest that if you're a Five Oaks attender and you're watching this on demand, that you get permission to, to see this. And these videos are all embedded in the se session on transgender uh, identities. So let's, uh, let's watch the videos now. 
So one of the realities, students, is that we live, uh, for those of you who are students, we live in a moment, and this is where you feel some extra pressures um, that maybe those of us who are older don't. We live in a moment where if you don't fit the cultural stereotype, gender stereotype, whatever your gender is, so if you're a girl, uh, but you don't, um, like she was saying, I, I felt more, I just said, I'm a tomboy, um, or you're a guy, but you don't like the stuff, most of the stuff that supposedly all guys like, but don't actually all like, that if you don't fit the, geri- the stereotype, we live in a cultural moment where a lot of times the very next thing that people tell you to do and put pressure on you is that maybe you ought to consider uh, pursuing a different gender identity, and sometimes even to the point of transitioning. And the reality is that that is completely, completely unwarranted uh, and is actually uh, a misuse of, we're not going to get into it very much, but it's a misuse of stereotypes. It's like making a stereotype into something that should shape who you identify as and who you are. So Kat's story is one where she experienced gender dysphoria throughout her whole life, and it's her own personal story. Um, If uh, a saying that is often used when looking at this subject that's really important to always keep in mind is when you hear a person's story of gender dysphoria, a person's story about um, a, you know, identifying as trans, you've heard one story. That's all you've heard. You, you haven't heard what it's like for everyone because so many experiences are so different and diverse. So if you feel, if you ever feel that pressure, one of my, you know, my suggestion is to you is to talk to someone that can come as a follower of Christ, walk alongside you, your parents for sure, Uh, one of the pastors, one of our student pastors, maybe your small group leader, and just begin to to talk about, you know, kind of the pressures you're feeling or the things that you're hearing or the feelings that you're having, and they can come and walk alongside you on that. So the question that we're looking at today, the focused question is, how should we love people who identify as trans or are experiencing gender dysphoria? And the very first thing that we're going to say to that, how do we do that, how do we love, is by always keeping real people in mind. Always keeping real people in mind. The reason I started with Kat's story, and the reason I have brackets there, I'll explain the brackets in just a moment, but the reason I have that is to make sure that we keep real people in mind when we're talking uh, about transgender identities and what the Bible says about it and how we should think about it and how we should talk about it with people. So how should we love people who identify as trans or are experiencing gender dysphoria? I put that in brackets because in a sense, we're really asking the question, how should we love people? <laughs> and, and just putting the emphasis on loving people, that's where the emphasis needs to be. And I could have just shortened it by saying, how do we love trans people? But if, if I say trans people, uh, there's all kinds of ways that goes wrong. For one thing, the word people gets a little bit lost in that. It becomes trans people. Uh, another reason I, I put it that way is some people who struggle with gender dysphoria do not identify as trans. And in Kat's case, which is a lot of cases, 
she doesn't identify meaning, this is my identity, I'm trans. That's not like the core of her identity, but she says she uses the term because it helps explain where her struggle is and um, a little bit about herself. When it comes to thinking about sex and sexuality in our present cultural moment, trans questions are the ones where everybody, not everybody, where we are most tempted to kind of go into full-on culture warrior, uh, justice warrior uh, mode. And, um, and this happens on the left side of the spectrum. It happens on the right side of the spectrum as well. It seems that all sides quickly forget that we're talking about real people. And so this posture is somewhat understandable. It is understandable. Uh, let's say, uh, for example, let's say we would even come to an agreement to say anyone has, a, anyone has a right to identify as transgender and shouldn't be discriminated against. Let's say we could just come to that understanding. Well, it gets complicated when the discussion starts going f further and it becomes about bathrooms and locker rooms and it becomes about women's sports and it becomes about... Um, uh, the use of certain pronouns and all that sort of thing. And while it might not impact us personally, we can get kind of heated up when we talk about this when it comes to people in prison, uh, when it comes to accommodations that need to be made in the military, uh, especially if we have a military background. It's really easy to just kind of get, get heated up whatever side we're on on some of these debates. On the one side, it becomes about overcoming gender tyranny. And on the other, it becomes about perceived dangers and about fairness. You know, in women's sports, fairness. In prison systems and bathrooms, dangers. And what's easily forgotten is that there are real people involved who are not athletes, who would simply prefer to use a personal bathroom, like a one-person type bathroom. People uh, whose preferred pronouns are not some protest or some big statement, but are just something that makes them a little bit more comfortable. So, LBGT, uh, we're just... It, it, it goes on, and that's constantly changing. I, it, I never even, when I, when I say LBGTQ+, and it's, it kind of covers it, but I don't even know if that's kosher to say right now. But LBGT, if you take that, the T is much more complicated than the LBG part of this equation, especially when it comes into society. It's much more complicated. And today, we're not even going to deal with everything to the right of the T. All right, we're just going to deal with what that represents, or at least part of what that represents. So how should we as Christians think and talk in society, think and talk within our churches, within our families, our small groups? You'll be talking about it in your small group this week because our you know, sermon application guide, uh, you'll, be, you'll be talking about it. How should we talk about it? How should we think about it when we're thinking about and talking about people who struggle with gender dysphoria, with the stress over their gender? Um, or um, when we do that, how we do that is going to be very much impacted if we keep people in mind. People. 
And, and these real people are usually not culture warriors. Um, and they're not usually activists. And I think you can see that in Kat. She's not an activist. She's not trying to push like some major societal agenda. She's just someone who has struggled from childhood with her gender. So if I can have the next slide. Um, basically, when we approach this subject as if people who struggle with gender dysphoria or who transition are culture warriors and activists, and we just kind of pile them all into that, we run a high risk of really missing the point. We fail to love and to understand the regular non-activist person who is struggling with this, often in silence, in our churches, or is simply trying to alleviate their pain you know, in the actions that they're, they're taking. And the next slide. And we risk injuring our friends and family members who struggle in this way or who have loved ones who struggle in this way. There's a lot of things that we say that are oftentimes in our um, lack of understanding that can be very cavalier, that are very hurtful to people who are in the middle of this, within their families or with their, French, with their friends, or personally in the middle of it. And really, as a bonus, <laughs> not a great bonus, but in some cases, when we speak insensitively like that, we really oftentimes, not, not always, but oftentimes turn off the next generation to anything that we have to say, and even to the beliefs that we're trying to pass on to the next generation, beliefs about Christ and about the gospel. Preston Sprinkle, one of the creators of the Christian sexuality curriculum, has written a book on transgender identities and, and the church and what the Bible says about it. It's called Embodied. It's in the resource section. It would be my, the book I would recommend going to first if you want to do some reading on this. But this is what he writes about the book, but it applies to what we're talking about today. He says, this book is about people, a diverse group of beautiful people created in God's image, people who are often marginalized and misunderstood, shamed and shunned by those who don't share their experiences, people who are infinitely valuable in God's eyes. I can't emphasize enough that we need to remember that we're talking about people, and we're talking about people, we're talking about people to be loved. Let's not forget Jesus' answer when he was asked by some religious leaders, what is the most important commandment? What is the most important commandment? So that's what's happening in this passage in Matthew 22. Uh, first part of his answer to the question, he quotes a passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy that was known as the Shema. The Shema means listen uh, in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word. It means listen, but it also means obey. All right, it's mixed together. Listen and then do what you're hearing. And Jesus would have prayed the Shema, this passage from Deuteronomy, every day of his life. Uh, they'd been doing it for hundreds of years before Jesus. They still, Jewish people still pray that same prayer today. So that's the first part of his answer. Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he goes into a book that most of us hate reading, Leviticus. And if you haven't read Leviticus, try it tonight if you're having trouble sleeping. Uh, so, 
go into Leviticus, and he reaches into Leviticus, and he takes one of the commands in Leviticus. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He doesn't give one, he gives two. And he says they're almost interchangeable. So the non-activist person who's struggling with their gender, and even the activist who may in some sense be threatening to you, is your neighbor. And don't forget that Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies as well. (laughs) All right, so that's the first thing that we need to remember, um, that we need to do. How should we love people who are struggling with this or identifying in this way? The very first thing is by always keeping people in mind. The second thing is by truly owning biblical convictions. By owning, I mean that you, you, feel, you, you have them not only in your head, biblical convictions, but you have them down deep into your heart. That includes truly owning what Jesus said about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. If you truly own it, you don't, if you truly own it, you don't excuse hate and bigotry and anger and nastiness. And if you do, you confess it and you repent for not loving your neighbor or your enemy. If you own what Jesus said about love, you seek to grow to be a better lover of God and lover of people. But what does the Bible have to say about sex as it relates to gender, transgender, gender dysphoria, gender expression? What should we believe about it from the Bible? What should be our convictions on all of this? So we need some definitions. First of all, we're going to go through these rather quickly. And, and really, uh, when I've heard people kind of giving definitions, I'm so thankful for this curriculum. Because when I've heard people, they, they'll go on for like a half an hour. And, you know, about three minutes into it, your head is spinning. It's like, I can't hold all that together. You know, you have to be in this all the time. But here are some of the important definitions that we need to look at. One is sex and gender. This is really important. In recent years, society in general, in society in general, sex has come to refer to one's biology, while gender has to do with one's internal sense of self, and it's oftentimes called gender identity. That's really important. Now, it may not match how you use those terms, or even how the Bible might use those terms, although I don't think the Bible uses the term gender. So, um, so it just doesn't match maybe how you talk about it to some degree or another. But this is how it's spoken of, and this is how language works, okay? So people can't communicate if they don't understand what the other person is meaning by the terms that they're using. And not agreeing doesn't actually change anything. The reality is, if this is what they mean, it's good to understand what, uh, what people mean. Um, it's how language works. Dictionaries and grammars do not determine what is a meaning of a word or how things should be said. Dictionaries and grammars have always reflected how people speak. That's why, you know, dictionaries get updated each year with new words or new definitions to old words or additional definitions to words. It's just how language works, and every language works that way. Okay, so a few other terms. 
Gender expression. Gender expression describes how people express themselves in society through their hairstyle, dress, manners, and hobbies and interests. This gets really complicated because like I was just talking about a little bit earlier, when you get into, the, into all the stuff about trans, the reality is that it, it, it plays on stereotypes. Um, the very people who have oftentimes been fighting stereotypes rightly all of a sudden are buying into stereotypes. It's just, it's very, 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 very confusing. Um, so next, um, transgender and identity. Some people use when they experience some kind of incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity or their gender expression. So they're, they're feeling, you know, and that incongruity can be, uh, can be uh, severe, I mean really severe, or it can be more mild. Kat seems to be describing something that's more of a medium type of incongruity in her own story. I think we have one more, don't we? Yeah, gender dysphoria refers to the distress that some people experience from, their in, from this incongruence between their pers the person's body and their mind. So not everyone who feels some incongruity are distressed by it. All right, so when you're talking about gender dysphoria, you're talking about pretty severe um, ex feelings of distress over that. But think about Kat, what she said about looking down and being surprised that she has a chest and looking further down and not seeing anything there and how that can just kind of throw you off if you're always thinking in those kinds of terms. I think it should go without saying, but I really, it really can't go without saying <laughs> that experiencing gender dysphoria is not a sin. Experiencing gender dysphoria is not a sin. Pastor John covered the, it was one of the videos that he showed, was so good at, at talking. And this isn't even a temptation. It's just, you know, it was talking about temptation and then crossing over to lust and crossing over to action. This is, this is even a different category. But to have dysphoria is not a sin. It is, it is an experience that a person has. Kat in the videos talked a little bit about this, and there's a whole range of, of severities. Now, there's an interview in Preston Sprinkle's podcast that he has called Theology in the Raw uh, that really impacted my understanding. Sometime in the last year, I heard this, and uh, it, it, was, it was a really good one. It's, it's, if you go there, you can go to the episode on trans transgender, I think it's called Transgender Identities Part 2 or something like that. So it's a woman who has experienced gender dysphoria since childhood. Her name is Renee. She's a seminary grad, working on a PhD in theology. She wants to be a theology professor. Uh, she has not tried to transition. She even works hard not to present as a man, even though as you hear her describe it, you can... You know, you, you, you would say it's like every nerve in her body wants to identify as a man. But she doesn't, she doesn't do that. You know, she doesn't outwardly try to identify as a man. She isn't an activist, of course. But as Renee talks about long hair and she talks about makeup and she talks about women's clothing, she says she emotionally can't do any of those things. She doesn't want to be that way. Okay, understand, she doesn't want to be that way. But when she puts on a dress, and she did for a wedding one time, it was like 
um, someone having a panic attack and thinking they're having a heart attack, you know, and can't find any reason for it. It's not a heart attack, nothing wrong. It's a panic attack. That's what she was experiencing during that day. Um, she tries to dress as neutrally as she can. And, uh, and she says that's emotionally, that's, that's the most she can do without just kind of falling apart in her day. And hearing Renee's story in her own words helped me begin to get an understanding of why some people who suffer with pretty severe gender dysphoria from childhood describe feeling like they're having an out-of-body experience or they feel trapped in a rotting carcass, which sounds like an exaggeration until you hear her story, or like a knife is running through them. So what does the Bible teach about sex as it relates to gender? In your outlines, I've got eight statements. These are from Preston Sprinkle from his book. He goes into detail. We can't go into detail, but his eight statements pretty much reflect what churches like ours, denominations like ours, uh, movements like ours that take the Bible as the authority. We go to it for truth, um, uh, for what's normative for our lives, what has been believed and is still believed by churches like that. Those eight statements capture it well, but they're, they're very much focused on sex and gender. So Sprinkle goes into a, little, a lot more detail in his book, but I'll just give you a quick summary of, of his position. You're going to have to look at it yourself if you're not convinced. But he basically says, our biological sex bodies determine whether we are male, female, or both, intersex, people who are born intersex. And our embodiment is an essential part of how we image God in the world. In other words, when, when in Genesis, and then Jesus, of course, goes to Genesis as well when he says God created the male and female, the emphasis, the male and female, is really important, and it is the way that we have been created. Um, it's what God's design is about. Uh, we don't always experience the world as it was designed. None of us do. We have all kinds of distress that we experience in all kinds of ways because we live in a broken, fallen world, and we have broken, fallen bodies and broken, fallen minds, and we're surrounded by people who are broken and fallen. So, um, uh, but male and female is part of the message that God gives. So Pastor John said something last week that a, that a lot of us who have been taking a deep dive into this whole series on Christian sexuality, um, you know, our, our two student pastors and the preaching team, uh, he said something that I think all of us have been feeling. When I heard it, I said, oh, that's perfect. I got I to gotta write it down. He said, my friendship and conversations, and he was talking last week about same-sex attraction. He says, my friendship and conversations with people who experience same-sex attraction has challenged me and helped me to think more deeply than ever about my own heterosexuality and my marriage and where all of that sits in my identity. It's the same thing with this subject. The more you go into the subject, the more you're challenged by stories that you hear of people who are Christ followers and are navigating, trying to navigate this distress and these changes and all of this. The reality is that people like Kat and this Renee from that interview I told you about are much more aware of and are seeking to live out the truth that our embodiment is an essential part of how we image God in the world 
in ways that those of us who don't ever think about it probably do. So, our embodiment is an essential part of how we image God in the world. That's, that's what the Scripture teaches us. But how many of us lust and then think, well, at least I'm not having an affair? Okay, that's a splitting. That's saying, my mind and my body are two different things. Jesus says they're the same. The Bible says they're the same. We, we embody the image of God. Um, our embodiment is essential, essential part of the image of God. That means we don't separate our minds, our hearts, whatever, from our bodies. Uh, you might have other people who may be having heterosexual sex outside of marriage, which is where Jesus says it belongs and belongs only there, and think, yeah, but God knows my heart. All right, so here you have someone that's focusing on the physical and then saying, it's okay because God looks and he looks at my heart. You can't separate these things. You just can't separate these things. What I'm saying is that people who struggle with gender and seek to live by their biblical convictions challenge us to own our biblical convictions at a much deeper level. That's how I've experienced it. That's how our team has experienced it as we've spent a lot of time talking about this. So how should we, how should we love people who identify as trans or experiencing gender dysphoria? First, by always keeping real people in mind. Secondly, by truly owning our biblical convictions. We don't help people by taking what Jesus says and, and redefining it to what we want it to say or what someone else might want it to say. Third, by rigorously examining cultural gender stereotypes. This is such a big subject, we really can't get into it um, in any detail. But let me tell you, stereotypes, once you start looking at this, you start realizing that the Stereotypes are damaging to people. The way we just assume things, well, men do this, women do this, the more we talk about that, it is literally damaging to a lot, a lot, a lot of people because a lot of people don't fit the stereotypes. A lot of people don't. And the more they hear it, the more they feel like maybe something is wrong with them for that. Um, the marriage advice that a lot of times people are given has to do is like from a stereotypical perspective and when it doesn't fit these couples have nothing to turn to except maybe I mean entire books where maybe one line says oh yeah but 30% of you don't fit this <laughs> and then says nothing to the 30% that don't fit that uh, so stereotypes can be very 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 damaging um, I'm going to show you uh, another video right now and uh, uh, give you a quick overview for those of you watching on demand uh, it's a gal named Heather and part of what she addresses is stereotype. And in the video, Heather talks about how damaging her father's words to her, uh, to her heart and her identity and her relationship with God. Her father expected her to conform to cultural stereotypes about girls, and it just didn't fit who she was. So she took the constant attacks from her dad to mean she was not the daughter he wanted and that somehow her femininity was hard to be around. Let's watch her story. How should we love people who identify as trans or are experiencing gender dysphoria? Keep real people in mind. 
truly own our biblical convictions, rigorously examine cultural gender stereotypes and how much we weave it into the way we think, the way that we talk, the way that we raise our kids, all of those sort of things. But fourthly, by walking together in the journey of discipleship. That's how we love them, by walking together. So walking is a metaphor from Scripture for the Christian life. And it's a metaphor that's used often in Scripture to describe the transforming relationship that we have with God. It's one of the many, many metaphors that describe discipleship uh, as a journey with God and a journey with others, not a, a static thing, not a thing of just jumping in you know, at various points, but a, but a journey, a walk, a, a path that's taken. The journey is about growing. I mean, what is the goal of the journey? It's about growing to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and about growing to love people. Um, and then it's about reflecting the Scripture. Also, the other image that it uses is for this journey is that we more and more reflect the image of Christ. Because when we reflect the image of Christ, we're reflecting the image of God. We're reflecting the image that He created us to be and what He called us to do. And it's not an instant thing. You know, we talk about this all the time. just want to remind you it's not an instant thing. It's a lifetime kind of thing that we do with God and we do it with others. So there's a theologian, Andrew Walker, who has said this. He says, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory of a Re Revelation 21 future. If that doesn't make sense to you, we've got a course called The Story of God, and in six weeks this will all make sense to you. It's something that's really important to us to help you understand the story of Scripture. We live in a Genesis 3 world. It's a fallen, broken world. We have a blueprint in Genesis 1 from God's creation, but we live on a trajectory to a time when Christ is going to return, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to get resurrection bodies like Jesus had. That's the journey the New Testament goes into great detail on to describe, to encourage in our life, and to give us hope. It is hope. It is what our hope is. Everything else is empty compared to that. So Preston Sprinkle captures this really well about this journey. He says, discipleship is a long process, a journey along a road. God doesn't demand overnight sanctification. That means being made more like Christ, more um, holiness being developed in us. And we're all thankful that he doesn't. Just think about your own sin, your anger, your pride, your porn, your greed, your insatiable quest for comfort. Next slide. How long has it been a struggle? When's the last time you messed up? Let's give people who struggle with gender, with their gender or have transitioned, let's give them some space and grace to work through their obedience to Jesus in the context of a loving, non-judgmental community. Space to grow. It, you know, in a sense, to walking with someone, it, we can only walk with them as long as they want to walk with us. It's like Adam and Eve didn't want to walk with God. And uh, it wasn't God's failure. Um, they walked away from God. It's the same thing in all of our relationships. Sometimes people don't want to walk with us, or they'll walk with us only so far, and they won't walk the rest of the way of discipleship. But as far as we can, we want to walk with people who are going through all of this. We're going to close with a couple of videos um, from Heather, but I do want to say something that, that occurred to me. I was over at the, the men's summit, our men's retreat, 
And there's something that the speaker said this morning that just got my brain going. I'm like, I can't add to this already too long sermon. But I, I do want to say this. I think there's, there's, a, there's one very specific takeaway uh, for this whole idea of loving. Um, this one speaks to within the church, people who are on the walk of discipleship. But sometimes the walk of discipleship begins just like with the disciples before they even believed Jesus was who he was. All right. So I, there's something that the speaker said that just made me think about students in school, made me think about those of you in workplaces, those of you in your neighborhoods, in your friends group, you know, that sort of thing, where someone, especially if it's outside of your friends group, where someone is identifying as, as, um, as trans. Uh, and, and so they are, you know, somewhere on that gigantic spectrum of transition, transitioning, maybe not transitioning, but identifying. Uh, there's all th that whole spectrum. And I thought about what does it mean to love those people in our workplaces, sports teams, at school? What does it mean? And then I thought what gets in the way of loving them for a lot of Christians? Um, what gets in the way a lot of times is we're afraid we're going to say something wrong. Like, like I said earlier, you can't keep up with this subject. The, the antidote to that is just simply saying, hey, I, you know, if, if you say something offensive and you know, somebody takes offense, you just say, hey, I really am trying, and thank you for telling me that. You know, I'll, I'll try to do better. But I think about many Christians won't even take that step because it's going to feel awkward, because they think in their minds, I don't agree with this. You know, that, that kind of thinking as if, Oh, I talk to everybody else at work. <laughs> I must agree with everything in their lives, right? I don't agree with this, so that keeps some Christians. Or they want me to use a certain pronoun, and I feel that that would be a lie. Um, to think that the use of a pronoun would keep someone from reaching out in love to someone who is as far as you know, very far from God, and to draw them near, to me is just heartbreaking. I mean, that's the big question that always comes. Do you use the pronoun or not? I'm not saying you, sh you should or you should. I'm just saying in that kind of situation, to have fear of I might mess up and use the wrong pronoun or I'm not going to use their pronoun, and that keeps you from having a relationship with someone is a tragedy of the largest order and a loss of owning what Jesus said, really owning it. And so I just want to encourage all of us, um, if opportunity arises, to take the opportunity to not only think about this in a certain way, but to actually reach out and touch people's lives. Heather, we're going to watch the rest of her story, and what I want you to hear from this story especially, and, and I'm sorry for those of you who are watching On Demand, you can get access. Um, what I want you to hear is how people walked with her in her journey and the lengths that they went to in order to make that happen. Let's watch the video. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for 
people like Heather who share their story and um, we think of how many times we don't hear really, I mean all of us, we just don't hear your love for us, we don't sense it, we don't recognize it when it's there. But Father, help us to more and more recognize your love, see your love, feel your love deep in our hearts and be shaped by your love. We need that and we need you and we need to help each other, walk alongside each other with all the struggles that come with living that out in reality in our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.